Good morning, church. If you have your Bible, if you'd uh, turn to Luke 22. Luke 22, starting in verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then they came to the day of unleavened bread, which on, the pas- on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered, a city, entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, and he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word, Lord, and we just thank you for the hope that we have in you, God, and uh, we thank you for the work that you did in your disciples that we can learn and read about and learn from, and God, we just pray that your spirit would be in Jackie today, Lord, that you would fill him and overflow in him, and uh, just teach us, Lord, and help us to leave here changed to be more like you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 21, just going to back up for a minute. Luke chapter 21, verse 34, as Jesus is wrapping up the section of Scripture that so many people look at as um, so vital prophetically for for you and I and and folks uh, in the future. It says, but watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Well, what day is that? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord throughout Scripture is, is discussed as a, a day of redemption and judgment. You don't get one without the other. The day of the Lord for those who are looking for and longing for His appearing, that's a day of celebration. For the earth dwellers of Revelation, it's a totally different picture. 
If you want to know what it looks like for them, read Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And that describes the day of the Lord. The day of God's vindication of His people. But His challenge here is to the disciples, right? It says, but watch yourselves. He's talking to them. He's talking to His people. He's saying, hey, life is long. Well, I never thought it would be as long as it's been so far. Right? When you're young, you're pretty sure you only got, you know, gosh. I remember I was AJ's age and I was pretty sure 21 was as far as I was ever going to make it. And I've made it a lot longer than that. And I wish I'd have took better care of it on the way. Because every morning now I got the creeks to prove, right? All the, all the things that I messed up along that journey. Life's long, and when we get into the long part of life where we're going to be faced with challenges, challenges where, for them as believers, they're going to be required or called upon to stand. It's easy to be a Christian who who just is that in name and word. But the Bible has this kind of incredible way of challenging us to be a Christian in word and deed. The Bible never divides it. I'm not suggesting that we earn our salvation by the things we do. Is that the only reason we do things? The reason I stay at home now and every time my wife rings a bell, I run down the stairs and I get her a drink or a bowl of ice cream or uh, try to give her some food or try to encourage her to lay still. Do I do that just so that Maybe one day she'll love me. Is that why I do it? Why do we do any of the things we do? We, we do the things we do because we're moved by passion or compassion, right? Paul would say that it's the, the compassion of Christ that compels him. He said the love of Christ, it compels me to move, to do. And so Jesus, he ends this teaching. And Luke speaks to us in the order that he speaks to us for a reason, right? So he's, he's telling them, be careful, right? Because sometimes these things, life comes on you like a trap. And when I watch the news, I think life comes on me like a trap. I can't believe the things I see and the things that I hear that our nation is talking about doing now. And I look at it and I say, how do we get here? And then I go back to Luke twenty-one thirty-four. And I say, while we, the church, were weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and this day came like a trap, and we weren't ready. We're not, we're not ready now. We don't want to engage. We don't want to plug in. We don't want to be a part. He goes on to say, it's going to come upon everyone who lives on the whole earth. It's, going to, it's something that is, is something that touches everyone from their time to our time. It's going to come upon all those on the whole earth. So stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand where? He says to stand before the Son of Man. 
Do you know that every believer is going to have that moment? Every single believer is going to stand before the Son of Man. And I, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do it. Because I loved Christ in word and deed. And if we think about our earthly relationships, right? None of us are really into the word deal, are we? I mean, words are good. But I'm kind of like an axe guy. The words are nice. But anybody can say the words. Show me. Show me. And I want to live my life in such a way that I can say, I'm ready to stand before Jesus Christ and to be able to show Him I loved you. I loved you by how I lived. I loved you by what I said and by what I did, what I stood for, what I stood against. I loved you enough to come out from among the middle of the crowd and say, hey, this is crazy. Do you hear what you're saying? Can you hear the words that you're speaking? The scripture says every day Jesus was teaching in the temple. And every night he went to the Mount of Olives. He gathered at the Mount of Olives and he'd go there for a time to pray. And Luke chapter 22 starts with this idea. Then there was a plot to kill Jesus. Do you think that plot ended there in 22? Or did, did that plot to kill Jesus stop with the crucifixion or, or the burial? Did it stop at the resurrection? When has that stopped? When has the plan to kill Jesus ended? Who is part of this plot to kill Jesus? The book of Revelation would declare to us, guys, that it's every unbeliever, everyone in rebellion against God. There's this myth of neutrality that moves across mankind. You know what the myth of neutrality is? That there is such a thing as neutral ground. Where do you get that idea? When's the last time you had a conversation with someone who was 100% neutral, didn't care one way or the other? If you didn't care one way or another, you wouldn't be having a conversation. Jesus said, you are either for me or... Does that sound like there's middle ground? You are either for me or against me. You are either standing with me or you're standing apart from me. So as we look at the... The, the scripture this morning, as we look at this challenge, as we look at this plot to put Jesus down, realize it's still going on today. It's still going on. The question is, are God's people asleep? Are they overwhelmed with the cares of this world, the cares of life? We lose sight of our purpose. Do we really think that Jesus saved us so that we could just sit around longing for His appearing? Is that the point? Was the whole point of justification by faith so that we could enter into a salvation that we can't earn for ourselves and then that was it? That was the end? Punch a card? Mark time until Jesus comes? Or are we supposed to be engaged? Are we supposed to be pushing against the darkness? Are we supposed to be a part of, of the, 
the resistance, if you will, the resistance against Christ, against the Lord. The story of the Bible is the story of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. You can get your heads wrapped around the literal locations of those places, or you can realize Babylon is a symbol for man's rebellion against God. And Jerusalem is a symbol for man who is ruled by God. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, we see those two cities. We see the destruction of Babylon. And so many times people ask the wrong question. Well, where's Babylon? Is it New York? Is it Who cares? Babylon is rebellious man. And one day God's going to put down rebellious man. And one day God's going to elevate those who are governed by God. And the, and the celebration in that is the celebration of truth so that we can say, yes, here is our God and King, our Maker. Look, He's here. And that day when I stand before the Son of Man, am I going to say, Lord, You gave me all this stuff and I buried it in the backyard and I waited for You. Is that really what I want? Or do I want to recognize that God has called us to live a passionate life? Is there anybody here passionate about anything? Are you passionate about music? You can be passionate about sports. You can be passionate about fighting. You can be passionate about a lot of things. Is anybody here passionate for Jesus? Passionate enough for Him that, that, that I, just like we want to, when I go get my hair cut, I want to sit down and I could talk about football or I could talk about the Lord. But then we battle with that thing, right? Oh, I'm going to make them, I'm going to make them nervous. I better sit neutral. What did we say in the beginning? There ain't no neutral. There's no neutral. Be who you are in Christ and be that out loud. Be that out in front. Be that exactly where God wants us to be. Because this morning we look in Luke 22, 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. So they're not arresting him while he's teaching, right? While he's challenging his people, the disciples, he's saying, Hey, the days I'm talking about are going to come. They're going to come on your generation. And you could say that for every generation since. The days Jesus is talking about coming on your generation. They come on mine. They're going to come on the next. They're going to come until we see Jesus face to face. And as we look for that reality, we recognize that the people opposed to him, they're always hiding in the dark. They're always back in the back because they don't want to do things that sound... Uh, um, the sound, the alarm. So it's not out in front until they have the power. We're going to see that they'll have the power in about, well, in a few hours from where we read this morning. It says in verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought for an opportunity to betray him 
to, uh, to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Now, maybe here's something you haven't thought about. A lot of times we, we come to this section of Scripture and we can, <clears throat> we can argue about a coffee tomorrow too, if you want. But we can be over literal and we can say, oh, Satan possessed Judas. Is that what it says? Have you ever had a battle inside of you about whether to do what was right or what was wrong? How do you describe it when you choose a wrong? We have this little idiom we say. You ever heard it before? We do wrong and we say, the devil what? Huh. We think that's new, right? We think that's a new idea, a new concept. Look, I know Satan is involved in it, but I don't know whether or not Satan possessed him. I don't know whether or not Satan moved into his body. The same thing's going to be said about the Antichrist. But there comes a point in every man's life where he makes a choice, he makes a decision. And Judas makes a decision. In fact, we we read about it. We look in in scripture in in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, 15 to 26, talking about Judas, it says, In those days, this is post-resurrection, the, before the second chapter of Acts, so the church isn't born yet. It says, Peter stood up among the brothers, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us. And was allotted his share in this ministry. So he was a part. Now this man acquired a field. This is what happened to him. And uh, with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong he burst open in the middle. And his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the field was called in their own language. A Kaldama. Which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate. And may... And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Now this is Peter referring back to uh, to David when David was betrayed um, in his life. And so it says in verse 21, So <clears throat> one of the men who have been accompanied, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. So they put forth to uh, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show us who you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. Listen, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It does not say where, where Judas was possessed by Satan, has no responsibility, and just did whatever Satan made him do. We know, we know that the Bible tells in Peter that our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, right? Seeking whom he may devour. And he devours us by conquering our mind. Maybe our mind is conquered when we spend way too much time sitting in neutral. Here's Judas. 
Maybe he's beginning to question whether or not Jesus has got this thing right or wrong. I don't know. But there was a moment in his life when he responds to the whispers of the enemy. Where Judas is responsible for his actions. The Bible clearly teaches it. The Bible clearly teaches also that Satan is coming alongside, pointing him in that direction. But Judas responds. Judas responds to what's going on. Did Jesus, in all the time that he talked to his disciples, tell them how to overcome temptation? Even the night in which he is betrayed, doesn't he say, pray so that you don't fall into temptation? Didn't Jesus, throughout his teachings, I mean, we're all the way to Luke chapter 22. We went through a lot of times where Jesus taught and counseled his guys to, to stay focused on the Lord. Keep their eyes focused in the direction, moving and doing the things that God is calling them to do. Be ready. Was Judas not there? He is. We can comfort ourselves. We can pick a theological line. We can say that that uh, Judas was reprobate and there was no choice. God made him like he is. And so he was going to do what he did. And that's all there is to it. And that comforts us because it, it lets us off the hook. We didn't have to do anything. Let's all the disciples off, right? You didn't have to notice because there's really nothing you could do. And then we start looking at our world deterministically and we start thinking our world is determined and everything's the way it's going to be and what can we do? Then there's error the other way where we say nothing is determined and we have control of it all. Nope, that don't work either. The Bible doesn't give us the freedom. So we look at it and maybe we recognize that there is something called the sovereignty of God. God's not ever wrong. So God says something's going to happen. Guess what? That's going to happen. But the Word of God also declares that man is responsible. He uses that exact word. It says that Judas chose his own way. He went his way. God said he was going to go his way. Jesus said it from the beginning. Jesus even prayed. Just about every time Jesus talks about Judas, in, uh, in John 13, verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet and is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who would betray him. That is why he said not all of you are clean. John chapter 6, Jesus answered and said, Did I not choose you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. See, God's not tricked. God knows where you are. God knows where I am. God knew where Judas was. God chose him anyway. Judas chose his own way. And for 30 pieces of silver... He makes a deal with the chief priests. I'll tell you where Jesus is going to be at night. He goes to a garden. I'll send word. I'll get word to you. So he makes the deal here in Luke 22, 1 through 6. It says in verse 7, Then the day 
Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. So he tells them, just in accordance with the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover is a period of eight days. Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days, Passover one, seven plus one is eight, eight days. In those eight days, the very first day of the feast is a Sabbath, whether or not it's on the Sabbath. High holy days are always Sabbath days. Sabbath day is a, a day of holy convocation, a day of rest. doesn't have to be a Saturday. It could be any day of the week. just depends on where it lands. So you'll notice when we look through this time period toward the end of Jesus' life, you're going to have multiple Sabbaths that are going to be spoken of. That's how that happens. The first day and the last day of a holy feast were both Sabbath days, regardless of whether or not it was Saturday. So it's possible in eight days to have three Sabbaths. So we look at it. They're getting ready. They're preparing. It says, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? So he said, behold, when you enter a city, a man will be carrying a jar of water. He'll meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Kind of sounds like the whole donkey deal. You remember the donkey? Hey, go. You'll see a donkey tied to a tree. Go loose it and take it. And if the fellow says, what are you doing? Tell him the Lord has need of your donkey. Now, that may be supernatural or that may be natural, right? The Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus didn't talk to this guy ahead of time. Hey, I'm going to use your upper room. Tradition tells us it's the house of John Mark. John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Tradition tells it's his house. We don't know whose house it was, but we do know this. They went out and they see a man carrying a jar, which was a little odd. And so they follow the man to wherever he's going. They come into the house and they say, Hey, the Lord, he, he wants to have the Passover meal tonight here. And it's all ready. It's all ready because, see, Jesus is looking to have a quiet night with his disciples because all the chaos is about to happen. All the things he's talking about in the previous chapter, all the overturning of the stones, that's going to literally happen in their generation. But their lives are going to be turned upside down within a couple of nights. How many of us know that our world can be turned upside down with a phone call? Just like that, right? Just in an instant. So we, 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 we're going to see. So Jesus is saying, man, I, I want to spend some special time. I want to spend a special night with my guys. So I don't think it's far-fetched at all to think that Jesus orchestrated it. The teacher says, where's the guest room that I may eat? So he will show you the large upper room furnished, prepared there. So when we do Passover, we do a Passover meal here every year. We, this year, uh, Jews for Jesus will be coming out. What's the date? April 15th. So we'll be having a Passover Seder right in here. We'll set up the tables and we'll participate in a Passover meal. Why do we do that? Well, in Exodus, the Passover meal was established um, as a sign, as a picture. Jesus is going to fulfill it right now. He's going to show us. He's going to describe it. The Passover meal is a meal that you take that you learn about why you're eating the meal while you're eating it. It wasn't just, hey, let's sit down and have some lamb. It was, let's sit down and talk about God's deliverance 
of his people from Egypt. Let's talk about how the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts and the death angel passed over us and we were taken from the land of Egypt and we entered into a life where we're following God. You begin to see how all those pieces might point to Christ. So we come to the Passover meal. They're supposed to prepare it. And the Passover meal took some preparing. You have uh, things that need to be laid out in a particular order and in a particular way. So the scripture will tell us in verse 14, it says, So when the hour came, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's the last time Jesus is going to eat the Passover meal. Until Revelation chapter 19. If you read Revelation chapter 19, the beginning of the chapter, you have something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says, I'm not going to eat it until I can eat it with all of us together. And in a little while, he's going to say, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine. So Jesus is going to say, as they partake in the cup, I'm not going to do this again until I can drink it with you in my, in my Father's house, in the kingdom. Looking forward to that final eschaton, that final day. That moment when we will all uh, be together. When the Old Testament saints will be there with the New Testament saints. In Revelation chapter 19. All described that for us. So Jesus is saying, look, I want you to know I've earnestly desired this night. So that I can sit down with you guys one last time. Because in a few hours it's going to get crazy. In a few hours your world's going to be upside down. But you see they miss all those things. They miss them all because they're always looking out somewhere. Well, that's something future. That's something far out there. That's something for somebody else. But it was for each and every one of them. It's coming to you. In a few hours, the last three years of your life, you're going to think we're a waste. You're going to run and hide. You're going to end up back in this upper room. You're going to be afraid. So I wanted to spend this night with you. I wanted to spend this night in your presence. I want you to know how much I've looked forward to having this meal. And as they have the meal, listen, the Passover meal is a story of God's deliverance of His people. And this night, Jesus is going to change the story so that they recognize it's God's deliverance of them and that He's the Passover Lamb. This is the night when the Lord institutes what you and I know as the Lord's Supper. When He says, Passover is Passover, but it all speaks of me. And let me show you how that is. And when we get together on April 15th with Jews for Jesus, and we're sitting in here and we're partaking, they're going to do the whole Passover meal, just like Jesus would have done with them in the upper room, describing God's deliverance of man. That that's what it's all about. That that's what it's all for. So he's like, man, I'm excited about this. I'm excited to share this with you. Because my work, my time, has come to an end. He's done. 
He just got a few hours left. He's measuring his time, not in years, perhaps a day and a half, two days, hours. He's describing his time. He's recognizing that his time is winding up, that it's coming to a close. But he's excited to share the Passover meal with them. He wants them to understand. So it says in verse 17, So he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. The beginning of every Passover meal starts with a cup of thanksgiving. There's two cups we're going to see in this text. First one is the cup of thanksgiving. The cup of thanksgiving, verse 17, starts just like that. The blessing of God spoken over the cup, praising Him for the fruit of the vine, praising God for His protection, for watching over, a giving of thanks. It's called the cup of thanksgiving. And so they would spread it around. And then He would say, verse 18, For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus says that's he's going to have one more cup. But he's saying, look, this meal, this meal I'm not going to have again. And this cup I'm not going to drink again. The cup of thanksgiving at the beginning of the meal. There won't be another cup of thanksgiving. There won't be a beginning of the meal with Jesus until Revelation chapter 19. Until I can have it in the, in my, in the kingdom of our God. In the kingdom of heaven. Until we can have it that moment when Jesus' feet or on the earth. Until that time, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to have it again. I want you guys to know. I want you guys to recognize from now on. So Jesus is looking forward, right? He's looking forward to that day, that moment when we will partake together with one another. It says in verse 19 then, He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and He gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you, do in remembrance of me. That sounds familiar, right? Doesn't it sound familiar? Part of the Passover meal is a, a thing occurs in the beginning called the afikomen. There's a napkin that, is, that holds three pieces of matzah. Three sheets of matzah. Those crackers that we have for the Lord's Supper. That's matzah. They come in a sheet. Holds three sheets. In the beginning of the meal, nobody really knew why. They would take it and they'd open it up and they'd pull out the middle sheet. And they'd break it. And they'd take half of it and they'd wrap it in a napkin and they'd hide it. They'd call that the afikomen. Dessert. That which comes later. They set that off to the side. The other is going to be broken into pieces. Now, in a traditional Jewish home, they don't know the significance. But when Jesus is sitting there with the disciples, he could say when he pulled out that middle piece, this is my body broke for you. And then passing it out to the disciples, that would be the bread. There's several times you're going to take a break of bread during uh, the Passover meal. Several times you'll take a piece. Every time you would be reminded, this is my body. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Then we have another clue. It says in verse 20, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten. What did he say? After you had eaten, right? So when we come to the cups in the Passover meal, there's four. The first one we talked about, the cup of thanksgiving. The second one is the cup of plagues. You take the cup of plagues and you recite one of each of the plagues and you dip it on your napkin. Talking about God's deliverance, God's work in the, in the plagues that came upon Egypt. Then you eat. Then after you eat, you take a cup called the cup of redemption, which remembers the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorposts that caused the angel of death to pass over. Now think with me how we began. Remember I told you the day of the Lord is a day of salvation and damnation. The day of the Lord is a day in which either you are covered in the blood of the Lamb or you are not. And if you are, the angel of death, the angel of judgment, the angel of the wrath of God, he passes over. Just like what happened in Egypt with the children of Israel in the Old Testament when they were delivered. So Jesus comes to the third cup. Look what it says. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten. And he said, this cup is poured out for all of you. It's the new covenant of my blood. That's the two parts of the Lord's Supper that we partake in. At least once a month. The two parts. The cup of redemption signifying the blood of the lamb painted on a doorpost. It's always been interesting about what happens when you painted the doorpost. The lentil. Typically what would happen, they weren't running around with a, a bunch of buckets and paintbrushes. They had hyssop, which was a, a like a branch off of a bush. Hyssop is like a, a, a brushy bush. And they would take the blood of the lamb and below the doorstep they always had this, this uh, thing cut down in the, in the block that you could pour water into or you could pour blood into in this case. And then they would close the door because you just want to paint the doorpost. You don't want to paint the whole inside of the house, right? So you close the door and they dip in that little part of the bottom of the door They'd get that hyssop wet with blood and they'd take it up and hit the top of the doorposts and then they'd hit the sides. And then they put the hyssop down, the doorpost is painted. Then they open their door and go back in. Do you ever think about what's on the door when you do that? Every part of the Passover pointed to the deliverance that Jesus Christ is about to work out. Everything that he did pointed to this moment. When the old covenant, the law, was established, you know how it was established? With blood. Moses took blood and he sprinkled it on over the people. Some get it on them, some of it's symbolic, but the idea is, okay, by the blood of this sacrifice we're instituting, A new covenant, a promise with God. And this is the promise we have with God, that we're going to obey His law. We're going to follow His direction. And so, 
First, they apply the blood over the people, and then they present the people with written scripture that would discuss the the points of the covenant. That's called Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books of Torah, the law. The rest of the books of the Old Testament are describing either the successes or the failures of the people in following the Old Covenant, the Torah, the Old Testament. Then there came a moment in Jeremiah, one of the prophets, where God says, as the prophets are kind of run down. Can you imagine being a prophet? You know what a prophet's job was, right? To tell people what God said even when people didn't want to know. Kind of like what we're supposed to do today. So they would tell them. Sometimes they stand on a corner. Maybe we don't like that style. Sometimes they preach in their underwear. You're probably not going to like that style better. (laughs) A couple of the guys were naked. You're definitely not going to like that one. Neither is anybody else. But each one had this thing in common. They were given a purpose from God to share the truth of God with people who didn't want to hear it. And they'd tell them and they'd tell them and they'd tell them. In the case of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the weeping prophet would share with the people and, and they would never listen to him. In fact, Jeremiah would say, man, God, he wants us to repent. He wants us to get our life right. We're going to go into captivity. Babylon's going to conquer us. God says, lay down your sword. Let it happen and live. And another prophet would stand up and say, Jeremiah is a coward. He has no patriotism. He doesn't care about our nation. God really wants you to pick up your sword and fight. Which one they listen to? The second. What happened? They died. Did they have to die? But they chose. They listened. They heard the false prophet. The lying tongue. They didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see. And so they fought. But eventually what happened? They ended up in captivity. Where what? Where eventually they submitted to the authority of Babylon over them and they lived. So God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the people are never going to listen to you. But I want you to know one day I'm going to make a new covenant with them. I'm going to write the law on their hearts. I'm going to put it inside them. I'm going to do something new. If I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it, Jeremiah. I just want you to know one day there will come a new covenant. And that covenant too will be established with blood over the people. Who uphold that covenant. They'll mark the doorposts. Only instead of the doorposts of their house. They'll mark the doorposts of their heart. With the blood of Christ. And instead of. uh, They would anticipate a new document. Right? Oh, What do you think they'd call that? The New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Oh. Wow. Gospels. Good news. Good news of a new covenant. 
that Christ now has become our propitiation. He's made a way. The question we have to ask ourselves is, He made a way for what? Did He make a way for me to apply the the blood of Christ on the doorposts of my heart to submit myself to Him? Is that what He did? And And then His work saves me and I'm good. That's it. I don't know. You sure? Look, I, just as much as the next guy, believe that we're justified by faith alone. Christ alone. But faith alone in Christ alone is never alone. There's more to it. There's a response. There's the Spirit of God moving in His people. How did the Spirit of God move in His prophets? Prophets like Jeremiah stood on the corner and said, Hey, stop! What are you doing? Why will you perish? You don't have to die. And the people would say, Crazy old man, what are you talking about? And they'd shake their fist at him and they'd call him names and they'd walk away. And then he faithfully would go back out the next day and he'd say, come on guys, what are you doing? You don't have to die. You don't have to die. One day, all the people of Israel, they came to Jeremiah and they said, Jeremiah, we've ignored you pretty much the whole time you've been prophesying and bad things have happened to us the whole time. So we're going to ask you what we should do. We all want to go to Egypt. What do you say? Jeremiah said, no, if you go to Egypt, you're all going to die. Jeremiah, you're no fun. Everybody knows Egypt is the place to go. You are just a dumb old man, and we're not going to listen to you, Jeremiah. And so they turned and they went to Egypt. You know what Jeremiah did? He followed them. And on the way to Egypt, you know what he said? You don't have to die. You don't have to die. You don't have to die. Turn and live. Stop. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. Come back to Him. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. All the way to Egypt. And when all of those guys died, you know who died with them? Jeremiah. And we look at those stories and we really think, well, that was different. God saved us now to be quiet. God saved us now to shh, don't make waves. God saved us now so that we can have a good life looking forward to a feast we'll have together with our king one day. But somewhere in the middle of that, God said, always pray that you'll be able to stand before the Son of Man. I want to be able to stand in front of them and say, maybe they thought I was a crazy old man, but I stood on the corner and I told them they didn't have to die. Maybe they thought I was a crazy old man, but I I had the conversation that was uncomfortable with the person that I I knew that was was in a life that was rejecting Christ. Maybe maybe they thought I'm just dumb and maybe you, you worry about, I'm going to push them away, I'm going to push them away. Well, if you don't say nothing, you're not going to push them nowhere. 
Silence does nothing but allow evil to continue. Silence does nothing but make it. So one day you turn on the news. And you hear a congressman ask a woman. So are you saying that if a woman goes beyond term and needs to, for whatever reason, end her pregnancy, she'd be able to do that. And to hear her say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I wonder, why is it so quiet? Why do we, why do we just stay back in the shadows? And we look around at our world and we say, how we get here? And I don't have hatred for that woman at all. She needs Christ. I don't have hatred for, for nobody in or out. Look, you're looking at a guilty man. The number one on the guilty man chart. Yeah, I'm not speaking as somebody who has no personal experience. Because it was expedient for me. I funded two abortions from two women that weren't my wife. That had nothing to do with health. Or whether or not we could take care of a baby. It complicated my life. It was easy. But it has never been easy since that day. Sometimes we have to be willing to do what is meaningful rather than what is expedient. Sometimes we have to be willing to say... I got to pay. But I'm the one who needs to pay. I can always kill the one that reminds me of it. I don't know that's okay. Genesis chapter 4, God says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? So God says, I don't know what's going on, Cain, but your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Innocent blood defiles the land. And our land's defiled. And that's not the only instance. All innocent blood. The world is defiled. And one day, God will purify. And I want to pray that I'm willing to, I'm able to stand before the Son of Man on that day. You know how I'll be able to stand before the Son of Man? If I was able to stand before my fellow man and say, You don't have to die. You don't have to die. Repent and live. That's what the Passover meal was about. That's what the sacrifice of Christ was for. We don't have to perish. We don't have to lose it all. We can hear. 
We can listen. We can respond. And we can live. And then we can let other people know, you don't have to die. You don't have to be filled with regret. You can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. Your life can turn around. You don't have to go to Egypt and die. You can live. God wants you to live. He sets before you this day in the valley of decision, two mountains, one of blessing and the other of cursing, one of life, the other of death. And he says, choose life. That's the call. Will we answer? There's another 10 years of being quiet and we'll wake up another day and say, how did we get here. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we lift this time to you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave himself for us, who saved us, who by his blood has washed me white as snow. He's the only reason I can be forgiven of the atrocities that I have committed in the name of expedience. But because He has forgiven me, because He has saved me, because He has washed me clean, I want to stand for Him. I want to be used by Him. I want people to know what He did for me. I want people to know that they don't have to perish. I want people to know that they can have the same thing I experience. Forgiveness of my sins. Renewal of my heart. The breaking of the stone and the replacing of it with flesh. So God, I chose to fall on the stone of Jesus Christ and be broken rather than have the stone fall on me and be crushed. God, I pray that we might see and recognize the call not only to a church to to stand and be counted and say who who we are and what we believe, but then to know, to study, to show yourself Approved the workman of God, rightly dividing the word of truth, knowing what the word of God says and being willing to share that word. God, fill us with your spirit. Like in Acts chapter 4, where the, 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 the church got together, Peter and John, and they said, Lord, we need boldness. We can stop arguing about tongues and a prophecy and a healing. Let's just pray for boldness. Because when they prayed for boldness in Acts chapter 4, it says that the Holy Spirit moved through the building, shook the building, and they were filled with boldness so that they could go forward and turn the world upside right. God, you want to do it again. You want to do it in me. You want to do it in us. I pray, Lord, that we might submit to you, that we would recognize that Passover meal is for our learning to learn what God has done but not to keep it to ourselves to take it out we have a resurrected king he wants to resurrect you he wants to resurrect me he wants to empower us 
So God, we pray that you would do so in this place as we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.